You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 14th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. US Republicans continue with plans to impeach President Joe Biden because of reasons. Would China have better luck brokering a Middle East peace than anyone else has? And which historical smell would you like to smell again? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Julie Norman and Isabel Hilton will discuss the day's big stories and we'll have Henry Ree Sheridan's latest letter from New York City. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I am joined today by Isabel Hilton, international journalist and visiting professor at King's College London's Lao Institute, and by Julie Norman, lecturer in politics and international relations at University College London. Um, Welcome both. Thank you. Good to be here. Um, Julie, first of all, you always seem to have just been somewhere, and the somewhere you have just been is Doha. That's right, and it was my first time in Doha. I have never been to the Gulf. I've worked a lot. Will there be a second? What's that? Will there be a second? You know, if they invite me back, I might. I will say their hospitality is pretty much unparalleled, but um, I'm, I'm more of a Levant girl when I'm in the Middle East. Uh, I, I tend to be more Israel-Palestine, Lebanon, that side of things. So um, the poshness, the, uh, the the grandiosity of things was a bit more than I was used to, but it was, it was quite pleasant nonetheless. What was the occasion? I was there for the Doha Forum, which is a, kind of a, a bunch of policy nerds who get together to talk about what's going on around the world. But a lot of emphasis on the global south, which is a bit different and obviously a lot on uh, on Gaza this time around so Isabel, by way of contrast, you have not been to Doha. Well, I've I've only passed through mm. um, on my way to China or other points east, and I've never been terribly tempted to linger. To be honest, I mean, I've been through a lot of Gulf airports, uh, well, <laughs> carrying uh, on as have I. Uh, usually on my way to Australia at roughly this time of year. But speaking of roughly this time of year, uh, Isabel, as we were in fact early, I believe you have figured out how to do nothing on Christmas Day. Absolutely. I am passing the bat on to the next generation and slightly bracing myself for the results. But I think it's a an appropriate moment. But basically, you are compelling your offspring to cook for you. I am, yes. What, what's your level of confidence? Uh, high. High. Okay. We, oh, we, that's my story. <laughs> Ask me afterwards. Well, I was going to say, we may revisit this in the new year, if, in, if indeed you survive the experience. Um, but we will start today in the United States, where the House of Representatives has voted to plough on with an impeachment inquiry into the conduct of President Joe Biden, specifically into a number of ghastly malfeasances he has apparently committed in the heads of the more excitable habitues of the Republican benches. Biden's accusers are yet to advance the meagrest scrap of evidence for any of their assertions, and the holding of one's breath in anticipation would be ill-advised. But this is, and who knows, perhaps this is the point, the kind of shenanigans any incumbent can do without as they seek re-election. Julie, what are the chances of this actually ending with Joe Biden actually becoming impeached and becoming the fourth president in US history 
to claim that title? Yeah, I would say pretty much no. I mean, there is very little that the Republicans have to work with. And this is all tracing back to Biden's son, Hunter Biden, who does have some legitimate charges against him Mm -hmm. regarding gun purchases and tax evasion and whatnot. Um, And there's allegations that Biden somehow, um, you know, influenced or benefited from uh, from the younger Biden's business dealings. But so far, there is nothing to show that that was actually the case and definitely nothing that suggests high crimes or misdemeanors. And this is, for me, just a something going into the election year that Republicans will use to just kind of tarnish the Biden image and just try and put some kind of even whisper campaign of, you know, corruption, of, uh, you know, dirty Biden, that kind of thing. So I think that's where we're going with all of this. Uh, And yet, Isabel, according to Mike Johnson, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, and I quote, the evidentiary record is impossible to ignore, which does (laughs) raise an interesting philosophical slash metaphysical question of whether or not that is actually inaccurate because is it impossible to ignore something that does not even actually exist? Well, that has been a bit of an existential problem that Mm. no evidence has as yet been uh, produced. But quite honestly, what they're accusing or what they're hoping to create an impression of is so arcane and complicated that the average Trump voter wouldn't be following it anyway. Um, all that they, all that matters is that they create the impression that somehow uh, the, the whole Biden family is corrupt and they're avoiding scrutiny and Hunter Biden won't come and testify in secret, insists on standing out in public. Um, and, which and is, that which somehow is something historically what people do when they've got something to hide well, is insist, indeed, insist on testifying in public. In yeah, public. Yeah. But it's all to do with a, a a Ukrainian gas company on whose board Hunter Biden mm. once uh, once sat, and a, a former uh, prime, vice, uh, prime minister, I think, of of Ukraine, Viktor mm-hmm. Slokan. Um, but as I say, the, the story is so obtuse that no one's going to be concerned with the facts, and it's not about facts. Is it as simple as Julie the the, the fact that Hunter Biden at best is a curious cove um, who does have, as you pointed out, perfectly legitimate questions to answer about his conduct? It is a bit weird, frankly, that he was given a senior job at a Ukrainian energy corporation despite a more or less total lack of any obvious expertise in that area of endeavour. And are the Republicans just trying to, or possibly even exploit Joe Biden's undoubted loyalty to his son by trying the two of them together? Well, I think that's part of it. And I will say, I think that there was a bit of a um, shooting in the foot with the, uh, the the pushing back at the Hunter Biden laptop story, all that kind of stuff. Like, I do think there's stories around Hunter Biden. But the question here is if there's any kind of link to be made to President Biden. And from everything that we've seen so far, there there's not. But obviously, when there's smoke, Republicans are really going to dig into that to uh, to try and create more smoke. And I think that's what they're doing right now. I mean, Isabel, has the US media, as far as we're able to tell, learned anything about how to report this kind of thing? Because this is, is straight out of the Trump playbook. You say a lot of mad, unevidenced stuff. And because you are, as he was, the president of the United States, and because Mike Johnson is, as he is, the Speaker of the House, I, I guess you should report that. But what? how careful should media be, assuming they're not the screeching partisan media that these people are appealing to, how careful should responsible media be about larding in caveats? 
Well, if you if you read the responsible end of the media on this topic, they they absolutely do report the caveats. Mm. The problem is that the people you know for whom this show is created are not reading the New York Times and the Washington Post. They're watching Fox News, and this is all for the Fox News audience and for uh, their friends and relations and people who really aren't going to look at the facts at all, but just like to imagine that that the unfortunate Donald Trump is being martyred by the evil Joe Biden. Uh, and just, just, just finally on this, Julie, is it imaginable that any of this is going to change anybody's mind or is that not the point? Is this all about just winding up your base and getting your vote out? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of both, but I would I would disagree in some ways that the pitch audience is necessarily the Trump voters or the, or the Fox News viewers who are, you know, as we've said, are already going to vote for Trump or you know already dislike Biden. To me, this is more trying to just sow seeds of doubts among independents. This is pretty much the strategy from 2016 to with Hillary just to try and depress the vote that people mm-hmm. who might come out for Biden just simply sit this one out because they just say, you know what, they're both corrupt. I don't want to vote for either of them and just sit it out. And I think that's part of what this is all about as well. Well, it does seem tiresomely certain that we will have ample opportunity to return to this one. So let's move along to the Middle East. And as Israel's punishment of Gaza continues, discussions of any potential future peace process appear optimistic, verging on the whimsical, especially Especially in a week in which Israel's ambassador to the UK, Zippy Hotaveli, and Israel's communications minister, Shlomo Kahi, to name just two, have declared that the two-state solution, long seen as the default, is no longer a starter. Nevertheless, there are those that hope that maybe China might be keen to sup from the poison chalice of the Middle East peace process and step forward as a mediator of some sort. Um, Isabel, uh, China's President Xi Jinping has spoken before and indeed quite recently of the two-state solution as the preferred outcome. But really, as far as it's possible to tell, how much does he in particular and China in general really care about the Middle East one way or the other? Um, the evidence is not very much. I mean, mm. and and how much clout do they have? They, they are the now important purchasers of oil. And, you know, they build stuff. But apart from that, there isn't they, they have no security relationship with anyone in the in the region as yet. They don't have a record of putting very much on the table in order to bring about the things they think they say that they support. And, you know, that's as true in Ukraine as it is in in the Middle East. So saying you support the two state solution. Yes, fine. But then what? And most of the Chinese commentary on the situation in Gaza and Israel has been of the it's all the Americans' fault variety. And, you know, we are peace-loving and um, can't you all play nicely? And that... Honestly, in a situation such as we are facing, doesn't really get you very far. Well, just to follow that up, Isabel, is it untowardly sceptical to suggest, as many people have of the war in Ukraine, that unpleasant though the situation may be, it does actually kind of suit China in that it consumes enormous amounts of everybody else's attention, especially that of the United States? Yeah, well, you know, stopping short of um, the, the, the thought that China... Uh, 
encouraged it, which I don't think they did. But there are certainly benefits. You know, if you have your eye on uh, the, the situation in the Pacific, which China has, if you look at all the kind of provocations that China has indulged in in the last six months, including, you know, trying to sink Philippine fishing boats with, with water cannon and a lot of incursions uh, into, uh, you know, around the Senkaku Islands, which are disputed with Japan, a lot of pressure on Taiwan, with almost no pushback from the United States because the United States has got its its head and its hands full in Ukraine and Gaza. So there's a lot of, you know, it's leaving China free, quite a lot of space free to, you know, just, just get on with asserting its, its claims elsewhere. There's a downside. The relationship with Europe took a really quite a nasty knock, mm. um, but they've been trying to kind of make nice uh, lately. I think that has has you know limited life. But if you're just looking in in geostrategic terms, yes, there are advantages to the United States being distracted in this way. Because, Julie, seriously, it is the case, is it not, that in terms of outside interlocutors in the Middle East, there is still only one that matters, and it is the United States? Well, in some ways, yes. I mean, obviously, the United States has the most leverage in the region, clearly with Israel, but also with other um, with other Arab countries as well. But with that said, I would say you know, the U.S., because of their close relationship with Israel, it's hard for them to be seen as an honest broker in mm. the peace processes. And so they have the leverage, but they have the baggage as well. And I think it's interesting to note that the one peace process that actually came to an agreement with Oslo, you know, that was really brokered outside the U.S. And then the famous handshake took place in the U.S. But but the actual discussions took place really without the U.S. involved very much at all. And I think that's something that might be somewhat instructive for going forward is to think about other back channels where the U.S. can seal the deal at the end, but where some conversations can take place without that U.S. heavy thumb on the scale. Because President Joe Biden, Julie, has also uh, been talking gamely about the two-state solution in recent months. But is it possible that those remarks that we've heard in the last few days by Israel's ambassador to the UK, by Israel's communications minister, and by several other senior Israeli figures since this crisis began, what if they do now represent the opinion, not merely of Benjamin Netanyahu's very right-wing government, but actually quite a plurality of Israeli opinion at this point? What if, after October 7th, the Israelis are just, nope, we're done with it. It's not going to happen. Oh, I think that's a huge um, risk right now, if not likelihood. I mean, this is a really interesting moment because for the first time in a while, we heard the U.S. talking seriously about a two-state solution. We have most of the region on board with it. But you're also at a moment where I think it's the least likely that Israel is going to go along with it. And as you said, that includes the right-wing government, but also just the country that is quite traumatized and is mm. probably not going to be looking to seal that kind of deal at the moment. So this is uh, this is something that I think, if it happens, it's still going to be a long way off. And a country which I guess would not wish to be seen to be in any way rewarding what happened uh, on October 7th. But nevertheless, Isabel, uh, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan is in Israel. He is not the first senior American to have visited Israel in the last few months. He won't be the last. Do we imagine that the Americans are still furiously, though, twisting arms trying to get Israel to back off at least a bit. I, I'm sure that, that they are. I mean, the public statements or the semi-public statements are getting stronger and stronger. And I think the United States is very conscious that this is, you know, this isn't this isn't helping the US reputation or the US influence in the region at all. And, and it, that is going to be necessary. Also, Biden is facing an election. And, you know, whilst you used to think, well, the Jewish vote is the most important 
you know, single block in the states. Actually, there are quite substantial Arab votes in in states that are, Indeed you know, fairly so. marginal uh, for Biden. So I am quite sure that this is uh, this is being, you know, that Israel is being lent on. Also, you know, in terms of the two state solution, there there is going to be an afterwards to this conflict, mm-hmm. you know, and the the question of, you know, a, an absolutely devastated Gaza you know, with sixty percent of the buildings destroyed, people with nowhere to live, that has to be rebuilt somehow. Some somebody's going to have to pay for that, and the price of any external finance for uh, rebuilding Gaza is likely to be saying to Israel, look, you know, we are not doing this again. You know, you have to you have to come to a political settlement here. Uh, just finally on this, Julie, as you said, you were in Doha recently, at which uh, I'm sure this crisis dominated conversation. But what sense did you get of the reality behind the official sentiments expressed by the Arab world in the last few months, which have been notably muted? There's been a few phoned-in statements of condemnation of Israel's heavy-handedness, but if Hamas imagined that the Arab world would rise up and ride to their rescue, they have miscalculated rather dramatically. Yeah, it's a good question. I'd say it's a couple different levels, maybe. And the uh, the population, um, young people especially, I would say, are are very passionate about what's happening mm-hmm. right now and, and extremely aggrieved by it. And, you know, many young people who didn't really pay attention to Palestine before are now extremely mobilized and activated, uh, you know, even in the Gulf. But um, leadership is, uh, is not so much. And I think... Uh, Many of them would be happy enough if Hamas was driven off into the sunset and, and not to return. And, you know, states like Saudi, states like the UAE, they were they were ready for this normalization with Israel. They were ready for the stability. They were ready for the economic gains. Well, um, the UAE has not repudiated it. Right. Um, and, and, and Saudi, too, my understanding is would like to come back to the negotiations when the time is right, at least right now. I think the longer the war goes on, the harder that's going to be. But right now, there's still that longer picture for many of the, the Arab leaderships. And, uh, and I think the question is going to be, they're, they're going to need to acknowledge the Palestine question within that in a much more direct way than they were willing to before. Well, let's look now at Europe. And the European Council meeting underway today and tomorrow is, like most EU gatherings these last 22 months, dominated by a country which is not a member of the bloc. The president of that country, Volodymyr Zelensky, has haunted the gathering by video link, reminding those present that history will judge them. He warned them not, as he put it, to fall back into indecision. And the breaking news within the last hour or so is that the message appears to have been received. Um, Isabel, remarkable development, really. Uh, It has been decided to open EU membership talks with Ukraine and Moldova and to grant candidate status to Georgia. Merry Christmas, Vladimir. Absolutely. I mean, it is a fairly extraordinary development, not least because it must have involved locking the president of Hungary in a cupboard for the duration and you know, <laughs> pretending not Prime to Minister hear his cries. I beg your pardon, mm. Prime Minister of Hungary, um, who was, you know, only this morning said that, you know, he wouldn't countenance such a thing and, and Ukraine wasn't remotely ready for any uh, discussion on membership. It's the first time that I can recall a candidate, uh, a candidacy being admitted uh, in a country that is at war. That certainly didn't happen with former Yugoslavia. Um, I think they they were, you know, there were conflicts, but they were not 
they I mean, they you, were well before. You, you could make maybe a case for Cyprus and indeed for, indeed well, for the United Kingdom. There was <laughs> there was certainly a discussion over Cyprus mm. um, for for that reason, but it was a frozen conflict. Is a frozen mm. conflict in Cyprus. So this is an absolutely unprecedented development and quite what it will say to Russia and indeed Ukraine or the United States, you know, remains to be seen. Uh, It's not clear yet, Julie, quite what has prompted uh, Viktor Orban's apparent uh, retreat from what appeared to be a fairly solidly dug in position. We will doubtlessly learn more about that uh, in coming hours and days. But is it possible that He just took a look around him. He does not have Poland uh, in his corner anymore. Poland is represented um, at this thing by Donald Tusk, the new prime minister, an impeccable European liberal and an absolutely rock-solid supporter of Ukraine. I'm sure that's part of it. And it's I feel like there's been many times we've been on the show and talking about like Orban's intransigence and kind of like, you know, uh, keeping it real up until the very last moment and then usually usually giving. And uh, I think some is right. The the um, the people around him have changed a bit that he's a bit of alone in this uh, kind of um, uh, upstart disruptor kind of position. But also, um, you know, he was he was looking for uh, for some payoffs from this, too, I think, mm. and some some carrots. And I think he got some of those with some releasing of funds that the EU had been holding, withholding from from Hungary. I think ten billion was released even before the vote, and I imagine a bit more to to get him over the line. But um, but yeah, I feel like this is something we've come to expect from him. The EU seems to expect it from him, and they've got it worked out one way or the other. Isabel, does this? I mean, obviously, it hasn't happened yet. It is not a short or uncomplicated process going from candidate status to actual membership just ask the turks but assuming <laughs> don't ask the turks or don't ask the turks <laughs> but assuming ukraine and moldova are being fast tracked and that does rather seem to be what is going on here once they are in are they necessarily safer? Because the EU, it is important to remember, is not a military or defensive alliance as such. It's it's not, but but I think nevertheless there's a kind of political... I mean, you'd think twice before you had a pop at an EU nation. You absolutely would, mm. because then you're making the EU collectively extremely cross. Um, I mean, on a, on a rather lesser note, uh, I, you may recall that, that China had a dispute with Lithuania in recent years. Indeed. And um, which started when there was a, an expression of solidarity in Lithuania for a demonstration in Hong Kong, which was itself a tribute act to something that happened in, in Ukraine. Hands across the Baltic became hands across Hong Kong. Um, and a demonstration was then attacked by some strange uh, group of Chinese in, you know, in the capital. Um, and it went on from there. But the mistake that the Chinese made, thinking this is only a little country and we can squish it, was that when, when they started interrupting shipments of of, uh, goods to uh, Lithuania, they forgot that in those same crates were parts for German industry, parts for, you know, other European countries. And also that the EU takes quite seriously uh, intimidation of any member state by an, an, an external power. And I think that that would I mean, clearly, the intimidation in in spades is already happening in Ukraine. But I think that a member state does certainly have a political protection and is pretty much proof against the kind of accusations that 
Putin has been throwing at, you know, he's talked today about denazification of Ukraine, um, you know, as, as part of his mission. And I think that that kind of thing would become much less potent if, if Ukraine is accepted as a, as a member state in the European Union. All that said, Julie, are there the makings of a trap of sorts here? And I mean, if I figured this out, I'm sure the European Council has thought of it as well, because these three countries, uh, the the new presumed imminent members, Ukraine and Moldova, the new candidate, Georgia, what they have in common is that Russia occupies part of all of them. Is there a possible trap that the EU and these three countries dig themselves into whereby, yeah, you can see the hand Vladimir Putin might lay down and say, OK, fine, we'll keep what we hold. Everything else can go and join the European Union. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that's I'm sure that's been considered. I think as we were talking about before, the fact that it's the EU, the fact that it's not a like military alliance that's mm. being joined here, I do think that makes a difference. Like if this was, um, if we were talking about NATO or something else right now, I think that would be, um, it would be a very different question. And, and with Speaking about the EU, though, it's uh, they knew they know Putin will read it that way regardless. But at the same time, this is a way to bring those countries closer, keep them a bit closer, and also I think just set up for whatever future negotiations might be and already have that established. I mean, might there be a temptation though, Isabel? Just finally on this, if this war drags on and it is on current form, hard to see it doing anything else, that you might start to get. European, well, extant EU members taking Ukraine, Moldova and Georgia to one side and saying just quietly look seriously, it's better than nothing. You could have two thirds, half or most of your country in the EU and probably NATO. You're going to have to let a few restive provinces go. Well, I'm sure some European countries already think that. Mm. Um, I mean, you do. And certainly some European politicians already think that. Um, But you know, certainly at the moment, Ukraine is saying absolutely not. Um, it's hard to know how a future administration would react to, you know, look, we can fast track your membership, but we can't sol- we can't solve your territorial dispute. I mean, so many other factors would have to be would have to be in play at that point. Okay, well, let's move along to olfactory news. uh, And in a project which may as well have been designed to annoy the kind of people who get annoyed by the EU, money has been spent on something called Odiropa. A name I really wish they had rethought. This This is an online database of scents. S-C-E-N-T-S, from the last few centuries of European history. There would appear to be a couple of obvious flaws in the setup, i.e. one, that the scratch-and-sniff computer has not yet been developed, and two, that probably everything in Europe smelt terrible until about 1970. But Europa again, not 100% on the pronunciation, has now launched its own search engine and its encyclopedia. Julie, are you persuaded as to the utility of this? Well, do you know, I got so excited when I first heard about this because I have actually said to people before, like, wouldn't it be great if we could record, like, smells and scents? Like, wouldn't that be so cool? But then it's like you said, like, you can't actually smell anything. It's just, like, pictures and text, like, about a smell. And I was kind of let down by that. I mean, it is all, all, all jokes and mockery of the EU aside, uh, Isabel, an extraordinarily ambitious project. And, and there is a logic to it. Any psychologist uh, will confirm that, that, that smell in terms of uh, eliciting and anchoring memories is arguably the most potent of all the senses. Well, a very long novel was written based well, on indeed, exactly that. Indeed yes. so. But, but I guess, um, I mean, I, 
I was also a little disappointed that somehow scratch and sniff wasn't going to be available. But but also, <laughs> you know, in, with reference to your to to your earlier remarks, I mean, when thinking about smells that are, will disappear and which mean, you know, which invoke your childhood or your past experience. I mean, I'm kind of coal burning and the smell mm-hmm. of petrol might might well be included. You know, if we are moving past the fossil fuel age, my childhood was absolutely full of the smell mm. of coal burning and, uh, and you know, petrol being 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 pumped into cars. So, 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 um, not, not, so that's my, my claim, not, apart from old books not also di- disappearing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not dissimilarly, and I think there may have been similar ingredients, it's, it's always the thing that strikes me as one of the differences between Eastern Europe when I first went there in the early 1990s and Eastern Europe now. It smells completely different. different. Yeah. I mean, you, you will remember this. It, there was a particular way that Eastern Europe used to smell, and I think, I think dirty coal, um, unclean engines... Um, a yep. lot of cigarette smoke. Yep. Um, and a certain kind of bleach. That you and get. there was a certain kind, but there was a particular thing, and now it doesn't smell like that anymore. Yep. The same is true of China. When you landed in China in the winter, there used to be a smell of you know, sort of charcoal braziers and, and coal in, mm. in northern China, and that's you know much less prevalent than it used to be. Uh, we did want to ask you both inevitably um, if there is a historical scent that either you have experienced or imagined, Julie, that you would like enshrined in such a database. Yeah, well, I was I, when I tried to think of historical ones, there were usually ones that I was kind of glad had like gone by the by. Like I'm not sure I'd want to bring back like anything from 100 years ago scent wise, but maybe not. So, uh, things that came to me were more like were more the personal stuff, you know, mm. like uh, my, on, on Saturday after Sunday afternoons, my uh, dad used to always watch American football games and he would make like homemade popcorn at halftime and like that smell <laughs> just always reminds me of my dad and just like I'm not a huge popcorn eater but like I love the smell because it's like my dad on a Sunday afternoon watching football. Um, and anything similar other than the the coal of your childhood? Um, I guess yeah cooking smells um, you know kind of spiced I don't know apple crumble something like that that would certainly do it. Uh, well, I, for one, am looking forward a couple of weeks from now to the, the, the first inhalation of exterior air after stepping out of the airport in Australia, mm. uh, because there is nowhere that smells quite like it, especially in high summer, and at least until the hay fever kicks in. It's marvellous. <laughs> um, Isabel Hilton and Julie Norman, thank you both for joining us. Finally, on tonight's show, it is time for our letter from New York City. Here is Henry Ree Sheridan. Moving houses or apartments is stressful at the best of times. And the only apartment move I've made in New York City was not done during the best of times. It was March the 15th, 2020. The World Health Organization had declared a global COVID-19 pandemic four days earlier. New York City public schools closed the next day. The streets were emptier than I've ever seen them. I own far fewer physical things than most people I know and I can normally find a measure of satisfaction in moving because it provides a rationale for me to cull my possessions, which I love doing. But this move was my first as a married man, and my spouse happens to own tons and tons and tons of shit. I gently suggested she adopt my philosophy, take the move as an opportunity to free herself from the shackles of her attachment to possessions. She called me a no-stuff loser. Then she said... I was endorsing Zen-adjacent philosophies to cope with my hair loss because I think it makes people subconsciously view me as monk-like. Then she reminded me that it doesn't matter that she has tons of stuff because she has access to a massive van owned by one of her family members. 
Over the course of several trips, we managed to transfer all of her complete crap to our new place, a 10-minute drive away, using the big van. We parked it in front of what looked like an abandoned garage overnight. In the morning, we found a note tucked under the window wiper. The words, don't park, were written on it. We removed the note and started to drive the van back to its owner. A few minutes into the ride, we realised one of the tyres was flat. It had a clean puncture about the diameter of a screwdriver. People whose garage we had blocked had only stabbed one of our tyres, and I admired their restraint. I know how lucky we were to have access to the van. Most people I know have had to rent one when they move. On the first of each month, there's always a conspicuous number of rental vans on the streets of New York City as real estate contracts turn over and people move into new places. I recently helped a friend move. It was a massive pain in the arse, and this was just a single man. All he owned was a desk, a chair, an instant pot pressure cooker, and an enormous and meticulously catalogued collection of vintage analogue pornography. The older you are, and the more people you're responsible for, the more likely it is that you're going to have a significant number of cumbersome and valuable items to deal with when you move. I'm talking about your fridges, your sofas, your mirrors, your microwaves, your beds, your closets, your dining tables, your electric drum kits, your enormous and meticulously catalogued collections of vintage analogue pornography. And as the people around you take on more and more responsibilities in life, it becomes harder and harder to corral them into helping you move. Virtually impossible if you're moving hundreds or thousands of miles away. This explains the existence of professional moving companies. Bands of friendly grunts who'll take your stuff, load it into a big vehicle, and deliver it to where you tell them, all with a smile. Or will they? On Monday, a federal jury in Brooklyn convicted two mid-level employees of a fraudulent moving operation. Working under various company names, the movers would advertise cheap moving services on fake websites. After the contracts had been signed with the customers, and often after customers' possessions had been loaded up into a truck, the rogue movers would spring surprise fees on their clients, sometimes doubling or even tripling the initial estimate. The movers would then threaten to hold possessions hostage, or even auction them off until customers paid up. Even after that, the return of people's stuff was often delayed by weeks or months, with some items showing up damaged. While the two mid-level employees have been convicted, the lead defendant, a guy called Yakov Moroz, appears to have absconded while free on bond. Moroz's company swindled more than 800 victims between 2017 and 2020, taking in more than $3 million. The lawyers representing Moroz and his employees will try to defend their actions. One of their lawyers made the argument that surprising fees are simply part of modern existence. The lawyer drew attention to his own recent displeasure at a fat surcharge to buy tickets for a Rolling Stones show. I don't think that this argument is convincing, but I do appreciate its spirit. It does ring true to me that, from a consumer perspective, it's harder than ever to get satisfaction. That was our New York correspondent, Henry Ree Sheridan, and that is all for this edition of The Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Julie Norman and Isabel Hilton. The show was produced by Carlotta Ribello and Laura Kramer and researched by Neoma Aque. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. <laughs>